the image is not something that can be lost or destroyed. What happens if tomorrow I get into a car accident and I'm totally incapacitated and unable to communicate? Does that mean I'm no longer the image of God? Yes, God could code things into the Bible that are like Easter eggs to discover later, but it seems unlikely that that would be the case here because it wouldn't have communicated anything. It wouldn't have made sense to the original audience. So what is the payoff for the first people hearing it? Hey everyone, this is What's Your Pastor and Tell You. Today I'm talking with Carmen Joy Arms. We're talking about the image of God. Hey Carmen, how are you doing? Tell us a little bit about your background as well as what you're up to these days. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I am a professor of Old Testament at Biola University in Southern California. This is just the end of my first year here in this role. Before this, I was a professor of Old Testament at Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta. And I did my PhD at Wheaton College in Old Testament Biblical Theology and uh, my master's at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Charlotte. My husband and I have been missionaries for many years. I've got three kids. Yeah, that's that's a that's a bit about me. My current projects, I have I have lots of lots of things going at once, but but the two things that are occupying the most of my time are a book on the image of God entitled Being Provisionally Entitled Being God's Image: Why Creation Still Matters. It's a companion volume to the book that came out two and a half years ago, uh, Bearing God's Name: Why Sinai Still Matters. So um, I've been working on that for a couple of years, and I've sent it off to the publisher. It's in the editing process right now. And then my other big project is a commentary on Exodus for Baker Academic, and that is loads of fun. Yeah, that's great. It's uh, very exciting. Um, of course, you also have a couple of YouTube channels. Uh, definitely put those in the description. And um, I do. Yeah. I you, you mentioning Prayer College and all that. I. Uh, jog my memory about you know all those advertisements you put on your your videos <laughs> this past year has been absolutely amazing my relationship with god changed so much <laughs> you must have watched the take two podcast welcome to the take two podcast yes yes which yes. <laughs> was produced while we were at prairie college uh me and my daughter did those together kind of theology for teenagers that was a really fun project um, and then, yes, I do have a YouTube channel where I post videos every Tuesday called Torah Tuesday. So if you Google me, uh, you, sh you should be able to find that. And that's that's an outflow of my work on these various projects. I find cool stuff along the way, and I don't want to wait years for people to see it in print. So I just churn out a video and say, hey, look at this cool thing I just found. <laughs> so, Yeah, you're one of the very few YouTuber scholars out there. And it's it's funny because like you have a few videos with your daughter, you have your like advertisements for your school, and then you you know you post about oh changing jobs. It's like we're uh, following along. <laughs> I'm living my life out right out in public. <laughs> sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. Um, <laughs> it's been I, I haven't had a negative experience. Um, awesome. It's been really great to interact with people. In fact, I find I yeah. learn a lot from people's questions and comments. Um, as I release the Torah Tuesday videos, it's, you know, I've just done the research. I've written a draft of a chapter of my commentary. Now I'm sharing things before it's even seen an editor. And sometimes people's questions help me to clarify, uh, you know, how I could say things better. Sometimes they offer insights just in the comments on YouTube um, will offer insights that I hadn't considered. And so it's, it's making the 
you know, being an author can be a very solitary experience, but this is making it a richly communal experience for me, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Okay. So to get into the topic, we're talking about the image of God. What does that mean? Uh, Carmen, can you give us just your, a general take of, uh, what a lot of people, uh, different popular views on the topic? Sure. Yeah. I, I think I would group the views out there on image of God into three main categories. There are people who think that, um, for humans to be made in God's image indicates some kind of capacity that we have. There are some that say it's pointing to a particular function that we have. And then there's others who say, no, it's our identity. So in the capacity category, there's those who argue, those who argue that um, the image of God is primarily talking about our, our rationality, like we're different from animals because we're rational creatures or, or our morality. We have this sense of right and wrong. Um, or our relationality, we're, we're highly, a highly relational species. Um, the more biologists study creatures, the more they can find that we, we actually do things for other people. Um, we do things for people we don't know, like Zach, you and I've never met, but I, I agreed to be on your channel, even though you're not paying me. Right. So that, that's like a, uh, that's a unique thing about humans that we will do things for people that we don't know. Um, so we're highly relational. So all of those views of the image of God are focusing on something we possess. Our, our mind, our, our will, our uh, relationality. Then there's those who say, no, it's, it's more something that we do. The image of God implies something that we do. Um, like rule over creation or or whatever. And then there's a, another maybe more recent stream of scholars who are saying actually function and capacity are both wrong. Identity is really where it's at. We are the image of God. It's something we are. It's not something we possess because the, there's ethical uh, conundrums that come up. If, if, it's, if it's something we possess, then what happens if tomorrow I get into a car accident and I'm totally incapacitated and unable to communicate. Does that mean I'm no longer the image of God or has the image of God been distorted or, or lost in some way? And so some, um, some scholars led by John Kilner from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, um, he's, he's one of the big voices in this conversation. He's a theologian and he says, no, the image of God cannot be lost or destroyed in any way. And every human being is fully the image of God it's not a capacity that we have in differing amounts. And as soon as, if you're talking about capacity or if you're talking about function, then you have to account for what about when people can't do the function or don't have the full capacity. So then, so these other scholars say, no, identity is a better way of talking about the image of God. Awesome. Uh, so on the topic of scholarship, uh, what would you say is, I guess, is there like a, 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 a is there a consensus on scholarship of what the image of God is or how do they look at it like that? Yeah. I mean, as I said, there's three different camps and it would be hazardous to generalize like, oh yeah, we all agree because I, I don't think there is generalized agreement on it, but I do, I have noticed some trends. This has, this topic was not my dissertation topic. So I haven't read as widely in it as I have in other topics, but my sense is that old Testament scholars 
tend to think of the image as something concrete rather than something um, amorphous. So they tend toward the functional or identity view as opposed to the capacity view. It's not, it's not your mind, it's that you're physical, physically human. Um, that's what it means to be the image. So among Old Testament scholars, that seems to be the prevailing opinion. Um, and the other trend I think I'm noticing is that there is more conversation going on between scientists and theologians and biblical scholars. So there's a little bit more crossover than maybe there was a generation ago. And that I, I'm not sure if that's the case. That may just be the slice of people that I'm talking to, but I've seen some really good interdisciplinary work going on and theologians paying attention to what biblical scholars are saying and vice versa. So, and I, I would say in that conversation, a growing number of people that I'm listening to are recognizing that the image is not something that can be lost or destroyed. So those, those are some trends. Um, again, John Kilner's the one who I've heard most often cited as the one talking about image can't be destroyed. Um, the, the big proponent of the identity view, the Imago Deus human identity is Ryan Peterson, who's a, a colleague of mine here at Biola, although I started reading his book before I got here. Um, so it's not just me like trying to prop up my colleague, but um, his work really is known on that. And then, and then there's some others as well speaking into the conversation, but, um, but there seems to be some coalescing around those themes. So does that mean that you got to walk in the other room and be like, hey, I got a question for you? <laughs> it does happen. Um, Ryan's actually in another building, so it's a little bit more, a uh, little bit more difficult <laughs> for me to just pop in, but we go to church together. So oh, cool. I can, I can easily shoot him an email or catch him at church and say, hey, um, I spoke at a conference on the image of God in February at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. People can find that talk online. Um, buckle your seatbelts. It's kind of a, it was a bold message um, talking not just about what does it mean to be the image, but then what should that look like in practice? And uh, I, I highlighted the work of four scholars, Ryan Peterson, John Kilner, Catherine McDowell, and Richard Middleton. So those were the four that I kind of said, okay, here's what people are saying. Now, how are we doing on living it out? Um, and I, I ran it by three of the four just to make sure, like I, I sent them my talk just to make sure I was representing them well. So three of the four are friends of mine. One of these days I'll meet John Kilner too. Oh, that's so cool. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So, so you have your, you talk about the, you know, current consistent consensus and how uh, people typically look at the the image of God, but yeah. what is your view of the image of God? Yeah, I probably tipped my hand a little bit. You can probably see see where I'm going with it, but I I follow Ryan Peterson in seeing the image as our human identity that cannot be lost or destroyed. And I think what I got from Catherine McDowell's book, um, her book is this is her Harvard dissertation, "The Image of God in the Garden of Eden," the very long subtitle. Um, she helped me see that that identity has to do with kinship, that we actually, as humans, we're related to God in a way that animals are not. And that came out of Genesis chapter five, primarily, where there's an analogy made between Adam's connection with his son, Seth, and humans' connection with Yahweh. And so um, Seth is the image of Adam, just like we are the image of God. 
And that analogy shows us that there's something similar about being parent and child to, to us being human. So, so my view of the image of God is that it is our human identity. Um, and, and that identity is, involves kinship with Yahweh and it has implications for our vocation. So this is where I sort of bump up against the functional view. And you may even be able to find me in print somewhere talking about a functional view of the image of God. After reading Ryan Peterson's dissertation, I thought, oh, that's not quite the way I want to say it. Now I want a little more nuance. Um, because if someone's in a coma and they're not actually doing something, they haven't lost that status or that identity as God's image. But there are implications for, for our vocation. And that that vocation I would describe as a representative rulership. So there's the kinship as aspect and there's kingship aspect that we, we are functioning kind of like kings ruling on God's behalf. Um, so we have a responsibility over creation. And then one last piece I'd add to my kind of definition of image of God is something that I find really interesting in Genesis 2, when God gives the man, the first man and the first woman the, the duty of Genesis one, actually end of Genesis one, when he gives them the, the status as his image, he tells them to rule over creation, but he does not tell them to rule over each other. So there's a, there's a kind of um, democratization and uh, I don't want to use the word egalitarian because it has an, another whole bit, bit of baggage around it um, that will alienate some of those watching, but but there's a there's a partnership. Partnership is a better word uh, between men and women in carrying out that vocation that's implied by our status. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Uh, add that up with you know the mentioning of like the you know ally helper and yep. Genesis too. Yeah, that makes yes. a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so you talked about um, the. You said kind of like they're they're not subduing each other um right. are you saying that you would expect it to be like that or where does that come mm -hmm. from um i'm saying that a lot of people root their vision of human relationships in what they think is a hierarchy between people baked into creation like that if we went all the way back to creation we would see that there's a hierarchy between men and women and I see hierarchy in chapter three as a result of the fall, but I do not see hierarchy in chapters one and two where God lays out his vision for humanity. And even just aside from gender role conversations, I think it's interesting that people are not told to rule each other because human history has been one long saga of people coming into power and dominating other people. And if we really wanna see human flourishing, apparently we're supposed to be partnering together. Yeah, that so, makes a lot of sense. Um, so basically, um, I mean, you do have some people that would say that, uh, you know, Adam was created first and then Eve, and because Adam was the firstborn, then he, he's higher authority or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, but if you look in Genesis one, a, they're made at the same time and mm -hmm. they're not told to subdue each other. So right. therefore, if that's the, that's where it would tell, it would say to subdue yeah. if Adam was subduing over her. Yeah, I think so, because it's very clear that male and female both are made in God's mm. image. In chapter one, there's a there's a like, like you said, a co-creation. They're they're appearing at the same time and they're both given this commission. It's not like Adam's given the commission 
Um, actually, we don't have Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. We just have male and female, right? Just man and woman. And we don't even have Adam and Eve in chapter 2. We have Adam and woman, and they're not named until arguably maybe the end of chapter 2. We get Adam named, but some would say not even until chapter 3. Is it a name? Does Adam go from being a, a generic noun to a specific name? So, so my point is, um, even in chapter two, where you have the Adam first, he is given uh, a job to do in the garden, and there's no indication when the woman shows up that she's not supposed to do the same job too. In fact, she's made in order to help him be successful at that job. Um, and as you alluded, the, the word helper is would be better translated ally. She's his ally in carrying out this work. So I, I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, totally. Um, I don't think we've actually read it yet. So oh, yeah, uh, let's read you want to go ahead and read <laughs> Genesis, what, 26 to however you think it's uh, sure, important. Sure, sure. Okay, so should I edit on the fly? <laughs> I'm, oh, no, I'm, reading, I'm reading from the NIV. I wouldn't translate it quite this way myself. So the NIV says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. I would, I would make it as our image. Um, I, I don't think the word in is, is helpful. I don't think it conveys what's really going on in the Hebrew. So let us make mankind as our image, as our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind as his own image. As the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seeds in it, they will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Awesome. Okay. So you talked about your view. Um, how much would you say the ancient Near Eastern context of how they saw the image of God, mm -hmm. how would you say that affects your view? Yeah, I, th I think it affects it a fair bit um, in that, I think in order for us to understand what a biblical author is saying, we need to understand what, what conversation are they part of? What, what room are they in? We're the guests, right? This isn't written to us to answer our questions. It's written to ancient people to answer their questions. And so we're walking in on something and we're observing. And so to observe that well, we really should uh, find out what do these words mean in that context? And I think the one of the best ways to do that, I mean, there's there's two aspects of doing that. One is to investigate the use of these words in all the other texts in the Bible where they're used. But the other is to investigate how these words appear in cognate languages. Um, and I so I think in for this particular question, a lack of attention to the ancient Near East has spawned these very non-concrete views of the image, like thinking of it as relationality, rationality, morality, um, these sort of intangible things, those seem like a platonic 
sort of post New Testament way of thinking about image. Whereas if we go back and look at how ancient Near Eastern peoples thought about images, and we look for the the word image, which is the Hebrew word selim, and in Akkadian it's salmu, and we have a similar concept in, in Egyptian. If we pay attention to that, we see everywhere it's something concrete. This is, we're talking about the idol. I don't have any idols in my office, but I'll just grab a concrete thing here. I have a willow tree figurine. So like, we're talking about like an actual figure that's made of something concrete and material. That's what a selim is. And in most cases, um, there would be when somebody, well, in every case other than the ancient Israelites, when somebody sets up a tabernacle or temple to, for the worship of the God, they put a physical statue in the holy place, in the most holy place. And that's a selim. So I think it's really important for us to know that. Otherwise, we kind of spin off into our own local, here's what I think it is, instead of really recognizing um, in that context, what, what would this have meant to the first people? So there's a couple of different ways that the ancient Near East helps us with this. Um, I'm, I'm drawing here on Richard Middleton's book. This was also his dissertation, The Liberating Image. And he talks about kind of, he, he goes through all the possible parallel texts and then identifies two that are most relevant, two clusters of texts. Um, one is where kings kings are the image of God. So there are a number of texts that refer to kings as being the image of God, not referring to regular people as the image of God. And what that what was meant by that seems to be that they're some kind of cultic intermediary. So if the king is God's image, they're like representing the presence of God to their particular area. Um, and so then if you set that alongside scripture, you see, oh, we have something different here. Every human being is the image of God, not just the king. So there's a democratization of it. And yet the representational presence aspect is still true of what the Bible, uh, I think, means when it talks about image. Then the other cluster of texts is one where kings set up images of themselves um, in order to represent themselves in some way. So Middleton says it's it's hard to be really sure what they thought they were doing when they set up images of themselves. But like when a king would conquer his territory, he would often put a statue of himself kind of on the far borders. And many times people have talked about that as a way of representing his authority. Like, I can't be everywhere at once, but I'm going to let this statue remind people I'm in charge here and people better be loyal to me. So a lot of people have used that example and I've used that example, but it's not super, super clear that authority is what is being communicated there. It could be some can consider those statues to be a votive statue. Like it's a, a way of indicating uh, their prayerfulness or gratitude to the gods for the land. And so, so either way, whether it's authority or whether it's like representing him in worship, Either way, it's representing the king. So that's the sort of piece that we can clearly take across to scripture that um, that images are representative in some way. And that fits with this idea of kings being the image of God. So I think I think the main takeaway to circle back to your question, like how should this um, how should the ancient Near Eastern context influence the way we read the Bible or how we understand image of God? 
I think it helps us guard against reading modern philosophical notions into the Bible and just helps us to see like, what would it have meant in that time? Yeah, it makes sense a lot. It makes a lot of sense. Okay, so in Exodus, it talks about God separating the Israelites from the other peoples, the other mm -hmm. pagan cultures from, and it can mean a lot of things. Um, but you're saying that Genesis 1, um, it seems like God's writing Genesis 1, and he's explicitly making men, man and female in the image of God. So to the ancient Israelite reader, they're literally going to think, oh my goodness, these were the image of God? Like, are we mm -hmm. an idol? Like, how does that mm -hmm. actually work? Uh, can you talk about, like, like, why would he do that like that? It seems kind of weird. It seems kind of pagan. Yeah. You know, I think the simple answer to your question is just this is how communication works. We, we don't communicate in a vacuum. The Bible did not drop from the sky for us, right? God, God is engaging with people on the world stage in the midst of history and culture. And um, we don't know exactly when Genesis 1 was written or who would have been the first people to hear it. Um, whether they would have had it kind of against an Egyptian backdrop in their minds or a Mesopotamian backdrop. Either way, we have examples of these texts on image, on kings as the image of God from both Egypt and Mesopotamia. Um, and we have statues kind of around. So I think the genius in the way that God communicates is that he, he starts where we are and then he takes us where he wants us to be. And so uh, we, we get another example of this. This is a little bit more in my, um, in my sweet spot at Sinai when Moses comes down the mountain with two stone tablets. This, I think, is a great example of the way God uses culture and transcends it because Moses walks down with two stone tablets um, and everybody would have known right away when they saw that, oh, we've just entered into a treaty because ancient Near Eastern treaties always came with like stipulations etched in stone in duplicate. There'd be duplicate copies of the covenant treaty stipulations so that each party could keep one. And so by, by inscribing the Ten Commandments on stone, um, God is communicating the seriousness of this agreement, this covenant that he's making with the Israelites. But then, then there's this departure from ancient Near Eastern culture because nobody else has treaties with a deity. People have treaties with each other. And when you have a treaty with each other, you can each take a stone home with you. And in the case of Israel's treaty with Yahweh, um, there's only one place to put the stone. So normally each party would take the, the stone tablet home and they would put it in the most holy place of their temple so that their deity could watch over the treaty and ensure that both parties were faithful to their end of the deal. And if, and if you began to break the covenant or if your treaty partner began to break the covenant, then, then the, the gods could pour out on you all the curses and all the consequences for, for doing that. Well, in, in the case of Israel, there's only one temple because their treaty is with Yahweh, their, their, their only God. And so both copies end up getting deposited in the most holy place of Israel's temple. And I think what that indicates, the text doesn't spell this out. I think it would have been obvious to the people. I think that indicates that Yahweh is, um, is going to be responsible for watching over their faithfulness as well as his own. 
he th there's nobody else higher than Yahweh who can hold him accountable. So they they hold each other accountable. They sorry he he holds both parties accountable. Um, so that's an example of accommodation. I, I think we should always be looking for what are the similarities with culture, and then where does it differ? Because in every case there's going to be some common ground. Otherwise it will be meaningless. And then there's going to be some departure from that common ground, some like some place where, where God is saying, uh, I'm going to do something a little bit new, or we're going to do this a little bit differently because I want to teach you something about who I am and how I work. Hmm, fascinating. So a lot of people see, they look at Genesis one and they think, oh, so this is similar, but it's different than mm -hmm. the other cultures. Therefore, yeah. it must be a polemic. It must be God saying, I'm not like those gods. I'm not a fake mm -hmm. idol. I'm the real I, the, I'm the real thing. You're my representative or something like that. What do you yeah, think about yeah. that? Oh, absolutely. I think what, what's remarkable about Genesis 1 is that it's not um, creation is not birthed in chaos. It, there's um, the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. So there's disorder, but there's not chaos. There's not conflict. Maybe is a clearer way of saying it. There's not violence in Genesis 1. And um, Middleton spends a long time on that concept of, of the absence of violence in Genesis 1 as, as paradigmatic for how we should think about our role as image. Um, but the very silence of Genesis 1 about violence would have been really striking to anyone who first heard this text because all of the nations have these creation myths that are birthed in the slaughter of gods and their blood becomes humans and their bodies are cut in two and that's how we get the cosmos like there's there's so much violence in the ancient near eastern creation myths so you could hardly hear this and not notice that so i definitely think this is a polemic um i i'm not as sure as some about like which particular text is is the bible like um, polemicizing but i think it's clear that this is different from standard fare in the ancient near east that's fascinating awesome okay yeah. so uh i know Catherine mcdowell has written a lot on this um the washing of the mouth and opening of the mouth rituals uh, yes can you talk about these and how they relate to the image of god sure um, part of what's tricky is that, so the, the washing of the mouth ritual is a Mesopotamian or Akkadian ritual. The opening of the mouth ritual is a Egyptian one, I think, unless I just got those switched. Um, anyway, this is, this is her area, not mine. I've read her dissertation, but I can't keep all the pieces in my head. Um, um, I was just going to ask you, yeah. um, could you also pronounce it? Oh, I mean, I can tell you. I can tell you how, how it sounds when I read it off the cover of a book. <laughs> I, I never had a class in which somebody told me the right way to say it, but the Miss P. Pit P. ritual is is the one, and the, I have no idea how to say the other one, Whoopiter. <laughs> Just, it's it's W-P-T-R. <laughs> so I don't know how to say that. I haven't studied Egyptian. Um, so the Miss P. Pit P. is the, is the, um, is the Akkadian Mesopotamian one and the Whippeter or whatever it is, <laughs> is the, is the uh, Egyptian one. And the, those two rituals are quite different in what they are trying to accomplish. And so part of what both Middleton and McDowell are doing is like a careful analysis of what are these rituals trying to accomplish? 
can can we kind of understand the logic behind it? And the tricky thing about understanding the logic behind a ritual is that we have a text, but we don't have like video footage of this actually playing out. We can't interview the people who performed it. Um, there's a lot left unstated about motivations and what something is accomplishing. So it's it's tricky to be sure about what they think they're doing. And then and then to compare that with what's happening in Genesis 2 to say, how many similarities do we have? So I, I think I'm hesitant and both of them are hesitant to like be um, really authoritative, authoritative about how these texts help us. Um, either of their dissertations, either Richard Middleton's or Catherine McDowell's dissertation would, would provide lots of food for thought. And they're more sure than I am about stuff because they've studied it more. But one takeaway that I have from their books is that um, clearly the, the correspondences between Genesis 2, and here we're thinking of things like um, God, is, uh, God is breathing into the mouth of the humans to give them life, which kind of reminds us of this animation of, this, of the cult statue. Um, the, the dressing them, um, the creation in a garden context, the movement from one to the other. There's, there's a number of correspondences between these texts in the Bible. Um, the, the clearest takeaway is that they fit, these texts fit this idea of a concrete idol, like the, the tselem, the, the, the image is something concrete that's being prepared for representation in some way. Um, another thing that's clear is that resemblance is not the point. The point is not when it, when an idol is being prepared for the for the temple for a temple, the the one who's making the idol doesn't think that this actually looks exactly like the god does. There are certain conventional ways that they um, that they shape like certain conventions in how someone's portrayed. Something is portrayed to indicate that it's deity but they don't know exactly how the God looks and it's okay if it doesn't look exactly the same as, as long as it has a representative function. So not resemblance, but representation. Those are, I think the big takeaways from those. But again, if you want more detail, I recommend either dissertation. Um, on that, I mean, obviously Genesis two doesn't, you know, it doesn't specifically say, okay, we are doing the ritual. Uh, mm -hmm. No, but, but it seems like, I guess you're taking the similarities there and you're like, okay, maybe this is what the, the writer of Genesis two is trying to portray, or, mm. um, I guess that's what adds meaning to the text or how does that work? So what Kathy McDowell is arguing is that usually image that the image of God conversation is, um, centered in Genesis one verses 26 to 28, which we read a, a little bit ago, um, that that's, that's where we sort of talk. And she says, actually, we should also be talking about Genesis 2 when we think about what does it mean to be the image of God because of all these correspondences that Genesis 2 has with these idol-related rituals. So once we establish that Selim is some is a concrete idol that that is representative, then we should look at the the idol rituals, idol-making rituals, and then you can see all kinds of links with uh, with Genesis chapter two. So that's where she's, that's why she's going to those texts. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so you talked previously, um, you're a big fan of Walton, obviously, um, not in everything, but, um, mm -hmm. so on one specific thing that I noticed was your, uh, 
I don't know if you are before you can clarify if you are. Um, so he talked, he takes a Genesis one, like an immaterial origins type of view, not mm -hmm. like creation out of nothing. Um, but, and you, you've mentioned before that you, you seem to think there's pros to that view of at the same time, Genesis one, you know, 126 says, you know, they're made an image of God, but you know, in the ancient Near Eastern context, every time image of God is mentioned, it's literally a material thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in Genesis two, it's, it's, if you're, if you are to say that the miss meet whatever ritual, mm -hmm. if that ritual is still a, like a material image of God, then how would Genesis one and two not be about material creation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So for those familiar with Walton's work and for those who aren't familiar, um, Walton makes a distinction between material ontology and functional ontology. I think he told me he's getting away from the use of the word functional. I can't remember what he's replacing it with, but so, so just, order. oh yes, ordered ontology or whatever, mm -hmm. the, the, the notion of order. So, so often we in the West have read, we've come to Genesis 1 expecting it to answer our questions about where stuff came from. And then you end up with a strong doctrine of uh, creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. God spoke and things just happened. If you think that what Genesis 1 is doing is showing us how things came to be. And Walton is, is trying to make the point that that's actually not what Genesis 1 is trying to do at all, because that's not what ancient people were wondering about. They didn't wonder where stuff came from. They wondered what it was for, what was its function. And so they read Genesis 1 looking for the purpose, hu human purpose in the midst of creation and the purpose of animals and the purpose of plants and the sort of bringing of order to disorder is the point. I totally follow him in that. I agree with him in that, that, that the point is uh, a, an ordered existence or a functional ontology. I don't think he or I would, I don't think either of us would say then that God didn't create things out of nothing. It's just that Genesis 1 isn't designed to answer that question. Um, I think I've heard him say this as well. When I read Genesis 1, um, verse 1 to me tells me that God made everything out of nothing. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like he's the one, he's the origin of all this stuff but ancient people weren't wondering so much about where matter came from. So then the text quickly moves on to say, okay, how did we get to the place where we had enough to eat and a place to live and a job to do? And that seems to be more the point of the text. Um, and which image of God fits in really well with that way of reading Genesis one, because um, image is, is here's who you are. And now here's what your job is to do. And I read all the way up through verse 30, because part of our job is to share the seed bearing plants and, um, and the fruits of the trees with all of the animals. Like God is giving us dominion, but he's also, but he's giving us the same food sources as he's giving the animals. And so it's our job to make sure everybody has enough. Um, and I, I, I think that's really interesting to, pay attention to if we if we're used to getting our food at the local grocery store if we're not farmers then we maybe don't think enough about food production and the anxiety of not having enough to eat and not having a hospitable place 
to, in which to grow food. But ancient people, like that's what they were thinking about. They were wondering where their next crop, you know, where their next meal was going to come from and how their next crop was going to do. And so that that seems to be more primary, uh, a more primary focus in their thinking. Yeah. So just to clarify, uh, so, yeah. so it seems like you're saying that although, you know, the image of God in that world is, you know, is talking about a material object, the focus of what it means to be in the image of God is like a representative role. Yes. And, and that's what we see in Genesis 1. Yep. And I was also thinking that if that is the case, if that's what the meaning of the image of God is, then that seems to give even more evidence for Walton's view that mm -hmm. focus or a function is the focus. Yeah. yeah, it seems like it to me too. And so, yeah, his view isn't saying that matter doesn't matter. It's right. just that um, the, they would have assumed a, a tselum is something concrete, but their question would have been, what is it for? What, what is it supposed to be doing? And Genesis 1, 26 to 28 answers that question about right. what the, what mm -hmm. the selim is supposed to do. Right. So, uh, so this will be, a, this is a fun paper here. Joshua John Van E, e or E, I don't know how you pronounce it, uh, wrote mm -hmm. a paper basically talking about uh, the Hebrew words radar and kambash. I don't know if I pronounced it right. Yep. Uh, basically subdue and rule. And um, basically he said in his dissertation that pretty much every single time the words used uh, definitely for uh, subdue, it's mm -hmm. extremely harsh language. And then, yeah. And kavash, which is to rule, or I don't know if I messed it up. Either way, um, I think it's it, actually where we get the English word kabosh. Like, <laughs> like oh, really? Know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you're, I think yeah. you're right, and I think he he's right that it, they're very harsh words. If it's such harsh language, it seems to um, be in a weird spot in the text. Mm -hmm. uh, and what does that say about the image of God and how that relates to us? Yeah, I, I didn't reread uh, before our chat. I didn't reread what Middleton has to say. I think he he makes a case, as I recall, that we do not need to see these as violent words. Um, but I'm wondering if if we're too quick to dismiss violence, um, although we're not. I, I already mentioned that humans aren't supposed to rule each other. So we're not kiboshing each other. We're not redying each other. We're kiboshing animals. Um, and the, the next story we get is about a snake that comes into the garden and tries to incite rebellion against Yahweh's rule. And when Adam and Eve uh, go along with this, instead of kiboshing him, they end up getting kicked out of the garden and there's cherubim set up to guard the entrance to the, to the tree of life. So I think, I think maybe we need to read these words in context of this concept of uh, the human responsibility to guard the garden and crush the snake um, that, that only those that, so, so I don't think they're supposed to just go around killing animals indiscriminately. Only those that threaten order and flourishing are, are meant to be put to death. And I think what's interesting is that we seem as a culture, we seem to be simultaneously allergic to violence and obsessed with violence. Like, like we're like, oh, that seemed really violent in the Bible. And then we go watch Lord of the Rings and think it's a, the best film ever. And it's got all kinds of violence in it. Why does, why does violence in film not bother us, but violence in real life does bother us? I, I just think that's an interesting disconnect. 
but, yeah. but my sense is that Adam and Eve's job, that the hu human job, the human vocation as a whole involves um, sometimes uh, doing harsh things to maintain the order. And so in chapter two, he tells, God tells the man to work and take care of the garden or to work it and guard. Is it guard? Yeah, work it and guard it, keep it. Like he's doing what a guard does at a doorway. And so you would, I mean, if you're going to have a guard, he shouldn't just like roll out the red carpet when the when the criminal comes by, right? Um, if there's a prowling lion at the edge of the garden, you need to get that thing away, right? Um, so yeah, that's how I would read those words as I think a hint of it's a wild world out there. And to maintain order, we're going to have to sometimes um, exercise that strength. I'm thinking of, you know, we, we live in these modern neighborhoods that are mostly hopefully peaceful. But like if we're living out in the wild in a tent, then prowling around animals that are predatory would be something to take really seriously. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Um, I do like what you said about how uh, there's there seems to be almost a benefit in harsh things sometimes. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I wanted to point out was um, I can't remember the scholar's name on the top of my head, but he he um, he he wrote a book on how um, in Babylon there were like two types of workers or in the mm -hmm. temple and. One was like, you know, the one that does all like the really, really priestly duties. And then yeah. another one of their their goal, their objectives was to, I guess, protect the temple from any animals that were coming in. Oh, interesting. So that just made me think about that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I, this may even like, I, this isn't something I've pursued. Um, like I haven't studied it to see if this would kind of work out, but I'll just throw it out there. Somebody else can chase it down. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of images of kings killing lions in in ancient Near Eastern iconography, um, especially in Mesopotamia. Like it seems to be this was that like um, Sandra Richter talks about this in her book Stewards of Eden. The lion hunt is is like part of like asserting kingliness, um, and so it's kind of crazy. They would they would capture lions and have them on these game preserves. The team of soldiers would go run the thing ragged and and shoot at it until it's almost dead and then they would call the king in for the photo op where he would like barehandedly kill the lion that was almost dead anyway um so that so there was seemed to be an association between kingliness and killing predators and i wonder if that's reflected here if we as in Im the image of god are functioning like kings do we then need to be responsible to um, eliminate predators. Hmm. Okay. So last question, I think. Um, so on the topic of the image of God, uh, you know, in Genesis one twenty six, it says, let us make, make, it says, let us make man in our image. So yeah. um, that's obviously brought a lot of speculation as, as far as how that works. What would you say yeah. you, uh, is some, you know, possible views and what do you think about it? Yeah, so I've heard three different ways of reading that um, let us. Um, I grew up, I think, hearing in church and assuming that this must be the Trinity, that that 
Here we have early evidence that God is three persons and the persons are talking to each other. The problem with that view is that it's anachronistic. Um, the Trinity was not a concept that was clearly understood until even after the time of the New Testament or as the New Testament was developing. Um, so yes, God could code things into the Bible that um, are like Easter eggs to discover later, but it seems unlikely that that would be the case here because it wouldn't have communicated anything. It wouldn't have made sense to the original audience. Like what is the, what is the payoff for the first people hearing it? What are they going to assume and what are they going to think of it? So I, I think the Trinity view is problematic. Another view that I've heard is that it's a royal we, like a, you know, the queen might, might speak, you know, we such and such, and she just means her, but she's speaking on behalf of the nation because, because of her role. The problem with this one is that we're lacking examples in Hebrew where God does this. So the third view, which I think is the most likely, is that this is a, a reference to the divine council. The, the idea that Yahweh is presiding over um, other residents of the spiritual realm, be they lesser gods or angels or demons, there's, that there's spiritual beings in his court that he presides over and deliberates with and talks to. We get a glimpse of the divine council in Job, the early chapters of Job, as they're deliberating about, um, about the man Job. Um, we have a, a couple of other places in the Bible where we get a glimpse of it. Isaiah 6, we, it's like somebody pulls back the veil and we see into the throne room of God. Um, and we see, oh, God's not by himself. There's, there's seraphim flying around, there's elders, there's this other things happening. So I, I think in an ancient Near Eastern context, based on evidence we have from other Old Testament texts, Psalm 82 um, is another example where this is pretty clear. Um, most hearers would have assumed, oh, God is conferring with his angelic host. He is um, speaking to the divine council. So let us make mankind in our image would, would be like God is letting his court in on this uh, deliberative decision. And, and then the result is, is analogous to what he has in his court. So he, if there are spiritual beings who do his bidding in the divine court, um, they are to him on in the heavenly realm, what we are to him on the earthly realm. That is, they represent his rule and carry out his will in, in the heavens, whereas we're supposed to represent his rule and carry out his will on earth. So I think that might be why we have this kind of parallel. Um, you know, some people have struggled. Well, if this is the divine counsel, let us make mankind, then, then does that mean that we're made in the image of angels, not just of God? But, but it it says God created mankind in His own image or as His own image, um, not God and the angels did. So, it it seems to me that there is some kind of an analogy between humans and the divine council. That's how I would see it. Yeah, I just I just did an interview last week with John Drury for the Fresh Text po podcast on Psalm 82. So we talked quite a bit about the Divine Council. So if anyone wants to yeah. hear more about that, uh, feel free. Um, I might have scandalized somebody by suggesting that there were other lesser gods. So I'd encourage you before okay. you write to my boss and tell them to fire me that you <laughs> please go listen to the other podcast first, <laughs> where I give a little bit more nuance to that. 
also looking at Michael Heiser. <laughs> yes, great. I talked um, about, I talked about the, the part that people are liking the best about that interview is that I talked about Heiser and Walton like sitting on either shoulder because <laughs> they, they are both friends of mine and mentors and they, um, they have a different view of the divine council, but they both talk about it. So they both recognize it's there in the Old Testament. Um, Heiser thinks this is how it is and Walton thinks they just thought there was a divine council. That doesn't mean there was one. So it, so I have them, <laughs> them on my shoulders. I don't know which is which, but um, yeah, they have they have different views on the divine council and on the presence of demons and the possibility of spiritual warfare and all of that. Um, but both of them are taking the Old Testament seriously. Yeah, very, very cool. All right. That's all I got for you today, Carmen. I really Hi. appreciate this talk. This has been awesome. Um, uh, did you want to give any like last thoughts as far as like i guess how we can apply this to our lives like mm -hmm. what, what should we do with this yeah great question i'm glad to end with that um i think it's it's really important for us to recognize that every human being is made as god's image that's their identity and that identity cannot be lost and what that means is every human being ought to be treated with dignity as someone who is related in kinship with with God. Um, an analogy that I've sometimes used in class that might be helpful for this is the, the, the parent-child relationship. If one of my children rebels against me, and let's say they don't want to have anything to do with me and completely cut me out of their life, there's actually nothing that they can do to erase the fact that I'm their mother and they're my child. Like the, the parent-child relationship is, is unerasable because it's a fact of how they came to be, right? So similarly, every human being is related like that to God, even if they've turned their back on God and they don't even think there is a God and they don't talk to God and they don't want to do God's will. They're, they still have not lost their identity as God's kin, as God's image they're made to represent God's God in the world. And so in order to fully, to, to, in order to live a fully flourishing life, we need to be rightly related to God. And so we need to lean into that identity and its implications for the um, represent, representative role over creation. Um, so I, I just think it's important for us to recognize that because sometimes we have, whether intentionally or not, a kind of hierarchy of being in our minds that some people are more worth saving than others or more worth investing in than others. And every person, no matter their, their class, no matter how much money they have, how much education they have, what color their skin is, whether they are abled or disabled, um, every single person is the image of God. And, and therefore, um, all of us have a responsibility. I think the responsibility in Genesis 1 is really clear that it's caring for creation maintaining the order that God brought into creation. There goes my cellum, I knocked it over. Um, <clears throat> our job is to maintain order and and to create space for human and animal flourishing. So, you know, picking up trash, recycling, um, being mindful of our consumption of, of goods and our consumption of, of limited resources like fuel. All of these things are something that are things that we should be mindful of. Treatment of animals, um, and if you want to delve into that the, that whole area of creation care more, I highly recommend Sandra Richter's book, Stewards of Eden. 
She does a fantastic job of showing how the Bible um, appoints us to this task. What she goes through laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy that um, that show that Israel actually was concerned about creation care. She showed me things I had never noticed before, and then she uses current examples of the mistreatment of animals, mistreatment of our planet, and the implications for human life and flourishing that come from those. So I think image of God is not just something to say, okay, cool, I'm glad I'm special, and then we turn and do whatever we want. It should flow into the way we think about our own human vocation and how we how we live well in God's world. All right. Uh, thank you so much again, Carmen. This has been so awesome. Um, as, is there anywhere where you would like people to go or that uh, a good place to check out other stuff of yours that uh, people might not have heard? Sure. So we've already talked about my YouTube channel. I also have a blog. And on my blog, there's links to like articles I've written and all the other interviews that I've done. There's also playlists on my YouTube channel of other interviews and sermons and that sort of thing. So my blog is carmenjoyimes.blogspot.com. Uh, on YouTube, I'm Carmen Joy Imes. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook. You're welcome to find me and follow me. And I love interacting with, with readers and, and viewers. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again, Carmen. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And uh, you. I look forward to uh, reading your book. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on, Zach. Yeah, no problem. Awesome.